or they're just trying to calm you down and convince you to take the thing. Because when you start going through that list of side effects, it freaks everyone out. Welcome to the Medical Dads Podcast, a parenting podcast by two dads who happen to be medical doctors. I'm one of your co-hosts, Dr. Stuart Harmon, a pediatric emergency room physician and father of four from Ottawa, Ontario. I want to be in the podcast. Daddy, do you know what you're doing? Can I play a game on your computer? Daddy, where's mommy? And I'm your other co-host, Dr. David Shu, a family doctor from Toronto, Ontario. Welcome aboard. All right, Dr. Harmon, we're back for another episode of Medical Dads. You sure are. Let's do this. So in the spirit of coronavirus, we thought today would be a good time to dive into talking about respiratory illnesses, because there's going to be a lot of these in the next couple months. And it's a good time for parents to do a quick refresh about what they know about asthma and pneumonia and all the all the fun, wheezy topics out there. Yeah, and even before coronavirus, these were definitely top of mind medical issues for families. Mm-hmm. Especially families with children. Yeah, yeah, I guess that's what I meant specifically. <laughs> I have no idea what people without children think about or worry about at all. <laughs> I mean, so when I was growing up in our household, asthma was like a big topic because my sister had asthma. Okay. Right. And this is like in the 1980s. Right. So a lot of the asthma treatments that exist now existed back then. Like puffers existed. Um, some of the treatments are a little bit different. Like in the old days, instead of getting puffers, you could get like this nebulizer machine in your house, Okay. right? So we had this like, it was like a blue device. It was like a cylinder. It was probably about 12 inches long and you plugged it into the wall. Yeah. And then the user would wear like a face mask. It's the kind of mask that you have in the hospital, right? With okay, the two yes. holes and then the mask sits on your nose. Yeah. And, and then my mom would put the medicine in and turn it on and it, I guess it would vaporize. Right. And my sister would breathe this in. Right. And this was reserved only for worst case scenarios. Now, I got to ask, is this something that you, your doctor had actually recommended for you guys? Or did they get this from some other, you know, like, no, 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 market? this is this is from the doctor. Like, so the, the longer story, I mean, we've touched on this in other episodes. My sister had all these allergies. Right. Uh-huh. So my parents were they were very committed to trusting their physician, but they were also very committed to trusting anybody <laughs> that could solve this problem because the initially it started with just allergies and skin allergies and then it evolved into asthma. Yeah. And it was just very difficult for my parents to get a handle on it. Right. And there was a year like in kindergarten where my sister missed over a hundred days of school. Yeah. Right. Which was a record that wouldn't, wasn't going to be broken until this year when my kids aren't going to go to school at all. <laughs> right. But But basically, she was always out of school, and my mom was always dragging us to the doctor's office. And the doctor would always give us some strategy to deal with these issues. And then my mom would listen to half the strategy, (laughs) right? Because the strategy would always involve, like, the S word, like steroids. And as soon as an Asian parent hears the steroid word, it's like, okay, I'll take it home, but I ain't going to use it, (laughs) right? I'll go find something else that works better than this, right? And I remember, I, ha- I remember having this intense distrust of steroids because of this. And then it didn't help matters that I lived in Canada and in 1988, Ben Johnson got exposed for using steroids, right? <laughs> yeah, I think for a lot of people our age, that is the actual introduction <laughs> to the term steroids that we are used to. <laughs> yeah, so I had, I had this idea growing up that steroids are really bad for your health, 
right? So when Ben Johnson was doing that and then got caught, I was like, that guy's a fool. Like he's using these horrible, evil things, yeah. right, to enhance his time. He doesn't realize that in the wor- world of my mom, that that stuff was destroying his health. Right. You know, even if it helped him beat Carl Lewis. <laughs> but so we went on like this for years, right? Like so. I, I actually think my sister did get prescribed puffers at some point, but my mom had this thing that, you know, you're, we're not going to use it unless you absolutely have to. Yeah. So she would use it very rarely. And then when the, when the episodes got really bad, she'd have to break out this nebulizer. It was this entire, like, super stressful experience, right. like dealing with asthma. And I, I wasn't even the one in it. I'm just the older brother who, you know, now that I'm a parent, I kind of watch how siblings interact and I realize older brothers are useless, right? And I was definitely useless in those times. And at the same time, I kind of see that from my parents' standpoint, with limited medical training and just hearing things from people around them, like steroids are bad for you. If you take them, you won't grow. Right. Right. Like, oh, uh, that's why Asian parents are so afraid of steroids. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're already on the short end of the scale. The, we can't afford any missing millimeters. Right? <laughs> and so, so it was just a real challenge to cope with it. And then I got to medical school and I started attending some lectures about asthma. And I was like, this condition doesn't sound that serious. Like my parents always made it sound like this like dire situation, right? And I was like, how come they couldn't get a better handle on it, right? Like in the clinic, it seems like these Western doctors have it all under control with their Western patients, right? And I later on as a working physician have realized this is not really the case either. (laughs) It's this condition that's everywhere, but not super well understood. And everyone thinks they have it, but they don't, not everyone really has it. Like it's a bizarre thing. But anyways, I, I was hoping we would get into that today a little okay, bit. Okay, yeah. You know, I think there are a lot of misconceptions around asthma. Uh, and hopefully today we're going to be able to sort of set the record straight on some of this, give people a more clear idea of what, what we're talking about when we say asthma. Right. So why don't you tell it? Well, why don't, one last story. I remember, I remember, I think it was in grade three. Yeah. And we had this teacher who was like kind of like one of these big guys, right? And he would just go around the class and just be like a, you know, because he was so much bigger than all the third graders. Yeah. He'd be like, what do you know about this? Right. So one time he was like, who knows what asthma is? Right. And, you know, on grade three, the whole class puts up their hand. Right. right? And the first guy's like, I don't know. I don't know. And every, and then some people would answer and be like, wrong, 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 wrong. And they would just go through this line of 20 people because in grade three, you all put, once your hands up, you can't bring it down. <laughs> and I was the only guy who knew because my sister had it, right? Yeah. So I had this idea that I kind of knew what asthma was, yeah. right? But I think today, let's set the record straight and let the actual pediatrician <laughs> tell us, what is the definition of asthma? Because everyone thinks they have this thing. All right, well, just to give people, just get the ball rolling then. When you're actually talking about asthma, asthma is an issue in the part of the lungs called the bronchioles. So mm. usually when I'm explaining this to patients, I'm saying, you know, you take a breath in, air goes in your mouth, down your throat, down the trachea, then that splits off into the two big tubes called the bronchi, and then those split off into a bunch of smaller tubes called the bronchioles, which are essentially the last tubes that air has to go down to get to the uh, part in the lungs called the alveoli where it gives oxygen to the blood. So mm. in these bronchioles, you're having three problems that sort of define what asthma is. One, you've got inflammation. So the bronchioles are actually red, swollen, inflamed. Mm. Uh, two, around the outside of the bronchioles, you have a muscle that uh, squeezes clothes and constricts. And then uh, the third one is that you can have some mucus in there, but it's really the first and second ones that, that give most mm-hmm. of the problems with asthma. 
Uh, and what separates asthma from other problems that you can have in the bronchioles is this fact that there's this constriction of the muscle that is reversible. So reversible means it can onset and things are constricted, but quickly it can also relax and let the air back through again. Uh, yeah, and it doesn't necessarily have to be quickly to sort of meet our definition, but yeah, with bronchi with uh, asthma, you can get bronchial constriction that's quick in its onset, uh, and then with medication can relax fairly quickly. Right, or without medication, relax gradually over time. That's right, yeah, right. exactly. But, but, but at the same time, like asthma can also be very aggressive, right? So, you know, when we, when we paint the picture that it's reversible, then we kind of have this feeling, oh, it's just coming and going, coming and going. But at its worst, asthma, because the bronchioles are closing and you can't get much air through them, yeah. then it can become very, very difficult to breathe. Yeah, absolutely. And so although what you were saying before about how we see asthma, it seems like, oh, this doesn't seem like as big a deal as it was to my parents back in the day. Mm -hmm. uh, asthma has quite a huge spectrum. You can have very mm -hmm. mild asthma, and most people, their asthma is mild or moderate, but then you mm -hmm. can have flare-ups or, exa or exacerbations that can get mm -hmm. very severe, and on an extreme end of things, we use the term status asthmaticus, uh, which is mm -hmm. where you're refractory to all of our treatment, where we're giving all the medications and nothing's really breaking it, and although I, in my career, have never seen somebody die from status asthmaticus, it is a thing that could kill somebody. So right. out there right. in the world somewhere, there are people who have died from asthma. But when you hear the term asthma, one shouldn't immediately jump to thinking, oh my gosh, it's that thing that kills people. My child is doomed. The vast, vast majority of people with asthma are living a completely normal life, just needing to mm -hmm. maybe take their puffer from time to time. Right. I mean, that was always the scary part of it, right? Because when you're growing up with this in your family, there is this part of it that it feels life-threatening. Right. And yeah. the machines got to come out and stuff like that. Fortunately, in this day and age, the machine doesn't exist anymore, really. We don't use this at home for patients. We generally don't, although every once in a while I'll meet somebody who either still has one of these machines that has been passed down through the generations <laughs> or some, someone they knew in another country uh, told them, oh, yeah, well, here we have this machine that people perceive like, oh, it must be better. It's a whole machine. And they get this thing sent to them. So I do right. meet patients from time to time who are convinced that using one of these old machines is better. Uh, and there is actual research to show that it generally is not. Uh, certainly right. for home use, it is not. So let's talk about asthma and its relationship to allergies because there's a lot of overlap here. And probably a lot of parents who have children with allergies have also experienced asthma. So they're kind of wondering, are these two things connected? Like, how are they connected? There's, there's three things that go together that we put under this heading of atopy. We say, mm -hmm. oh, you, you have atopy or you're an atopic child when you have eczema or allergies or asthma. Uh, those three things, they're not on a spectrum to say that asthma is the end point of really severe allergies. I, I don't want people to think about it that way. But there are three things that on a molecular level uh, have a similar pathology or the, the mechanisms that cause those three things are very mm -hmm. similar. But what mm -hmm. it means for just people listening in a practical sense is that if you have a child with eczema and a child with allergies, then you can anticipate that they'll be more at risk of developing asthma down the road. Or right. if you have a child with, asthma, with allergies, then don't be surprised if you're starting to have this skin rash that we call eczema. Right. So they often go hand in hand in this atopic person. That's right. The other 
sort of direct relationship between those two things. I often am saying to people that asthma is something that you you start to develop it very early in life. You're probably mm-hmm. born with the predisposition to have it, and then it starts to manifest usually within the first two, three years of life. Um, but that said, on a day-to-day basis, most people with asthma are completely fine. On, on any given day, you, you talk to someone with asthma, and they're not having any symptoms or anything that would separate them from anyone else. When I see them in the hospital is usually because they have a flare-up of their asthma, right. and those are typically caused by something that triggers the asthma. Right. Uh, so there are many different things that can trigger someone's asthma to flare up. For me, the common one that I would see is a viral illness. A kid who normally is right. fine, they start to have a runny nose, cough, congestion, and then before you know it, their their breathing gets really difficult. But right. another common trigger that maybe you see more than I do is allergies. People's say, sort of seasonal allergies, their allergy mm-hmm. to ragweed or cut grass or whatever, triggers their asthma to flare up. Right. So every year around spring or around fall, they're more, a little more prone to asthma than they are the rest of the year. That's right. So, so there might be people listening to this saying, uh, oh, okay, this changes my perspective because up until now I would have said, oh, no, no, my, my kid doesn't have asthma. They only mm-hmm. have symptoms when they get a cold. Or they'll right. say, oh, no, no, they don't have asthma. Uh, they have wheezing and they take a puffer, but that's only for their allergies. <laughs> well, it gets confusing because doctors sometimes will prescribe the puffers even when the people don't actually have a formally diagnosed asthma. You know, like sometimes people will have a lingering cold, a lingering cough. Yeah. And it's been dragging on a while and we'll just try them on a puffer. Right. Yeah. And we'll get to that. There's this whole other thing called the post viral cough, which I see a ton of. <laughs> right. So people get all confused about do they have asthma? Do they have bronchitis? Do they just have a lingering cough? And it really just depends on what term the doctor <laughs> decided to use that day. Right. But asthma itself is a very, very specific condition. Right. So. How do you diagnose someone officially with asthma? So the formal way to diagnose asthma is with something called pulmonary function tests. Right. So uh, these are things where the child has a tube that they have to breathe into while they're in a special chamber that's actually able to measure a number of variables, including how much volume their, their lungs seem to be able to hold, how much air they're able to push out, how much air they're able to expire in a certain mm-hmm. uh, amount of time. Right. Uh, and these, these, we use these numbers to help to formally make the diagnosis of asthma. And generally what right. you want to see when you're doing that testing is that they have subpar numbers on the tests. And then when you give them asthma medication, then, right. then you see improvement. That's, sort of, right. that's what so, separates from asthma versus something else giving a problem with your lungs. I, I think the take-home point for parents is if they're not sure if the child has asthma, then they should think back, did they ever actually do this test? Right. If it's just their doctor banding the word around or hinting that they might have asthma, it's hard to tell. But if they've actually had this test and been formally diagnosed with it, then we kind of know because there there are these objective numbers like percentages that if they can't score, um, then we diagnose them with asthma as a condition. Yeah, that's that's fair to say. I, I actually would not criticize physicians for making the diagnosis of asthma without doing pulmonary function tests. True, uh, True. The main thing with these tests is that you have to be about six years old to actually do the tests. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe if you have a five-year-old who's very cooperative and good at following instructions, you could maybe push it a little bit younger. But generally speaking, you have to be six years old to actually follow the instructions necessary to do the test. Mm-hmm. However, most kids with asthma are going to start to have symptoms and present before they're old enough to do that test. Yeah, like at age three or four or five kind of thing. That's right. And some of these kids are actually going to outgrow their asthma before they're old enough to do the tests. 
Mm-hmm. So, so the actual way to diagnose asthma is by doing that test if you want the definitive way of diagnosing it. However, uh, uh, you could diagnose asthma if you have a, if you, if for, as a physician, you have a patient who has wheezing that you can audibly hear wheezing and it's truly wheezing with your stethoscope. Uh, and that wheezing resolves when they take asthma medication. If, mm-hmm. if you have that, then you can call that asthma. Uh, it's just hard because in, in a physician's office, they may be hearing a story that the parent's describing that they don't know if what their parent's describing is actually wheezing. And then they can right. give them some medicine to use at home and the parent can come back and report that it got better. But the physician right. does not really know, did, was it wheezing and did it get better because of the medicine that I gave them? Right. And that happens a lot, right? Yeah. So a lot of times you can't hear that much. The symptoms may be mild at the time because they're reversible to some degree. So you might not be seeing it at its worst. So it's it's a hard thing to pin down sometimes. And the testing does help, you know, really iron out the cases that are kind of on the borderline. Like sometimes we'll see a case where we're kind of like, you know, is that asthma? Is it not? It sounds a little like it. It sounds maybe it's not. Then the testing can really help in those cases, especially. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, if you're in a situation like mine where patients are coming to you while they're having respiratory stress because I'm in an emergency department, uh, I'm able to give them asthma medication and able to like, to measure how much they've improved in front of me, mm-hmm. like in the hospital. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I guess what I'm saying is other doctors out in the community might tell you that they have you have asthma and maybe they don't know what they're talking about. But if Stuart Harmon tells you that you have asthma, <laughs> then yeah, yeah, it's, you have asthma. I know what I'm talking about. I mean... The other type of asthma that comes up is the, aside from allergy and cold or viral induced, the other one is exercise induced. So that appears a little bit more as kids get older also. Like I see a fair amount of this in like the middle school, high school age child, right? Who, when they go for a long run or something where they have to work of breathing goes up, then they start to get more short of breath than the other kids around them. Yeah. Right. And then th- that symptom doesn't usually last for very long. Yeah. Like they'll, it'll settle down once they rest a bit mm-hmm. if it's mild, but it can actually turn into an, like a severe flare up too, if they really let the exercise get out of control. Yeah. I think in a lot of ways, exercise induced asthma, although it's not the most common type of asthma that we see for a lot of parents, that's what they conceptualize asthma as. So for a lot of parents, when you're saying, oh, yeah, your child, I can hear wheezing when I listen to their lungs with my stethoscope, and I'm going to give them some medication medication because it sounds like asthma, the parent would say, no, no, that doesn't make sense because you should see this kid. He can can beat any other kid in a race. Or, no, no, my daughter, (laughs) she does ballet. She does not get tired. And as you say, yeah, no, most asthma isn't that they can't exercise because they get tired. That's uh, that's a type of asthma. So these are the types of asthma. Generally, it's pretty mild, but sometimes it can be severe, right? So now for parents, what should they be watching for? Like, how does asthma come on in a child? That's right. I think that's what we need to tell people because people are wondering, well, how do I know if my kid has asthma? If your child is having wheezing, so oftentimes people describe any weird noise their kid's making when they breathe as wheezing. But for Mm -hmm. our purposes, wheezing is a noise that sounds like, you can hear that when the kid is breathing out. And mm-hmm. that's generally what it is. It's a, it's, it's characteristically a noise that they're making when the, when they're breathing out, not when they're breathing in. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it's really severe, like if they're having a very bad flare, then you might hear wheezing when they're breathing in and out. But it would be weird to only hear it when they're breathing in and not when they're breathing out. But right. if you hear wheezing in your kid, then that should be one of your th- first thoughts: is, oh, okay, is this asthma? 
Now, how would you go about hearing the wheezing? Like you're just watching your kids sleep and the wheezing is audible to your ear or how, what do you have to do? For most people, when they're coming to me and telling me, tell me they hear it, this is something they're hearing without a stethoscope. This is just something right. that they, they can hear their kid making that noise. Uh, they listen near the mouth and they hear this noise. Like, oh, yeah, that sounds like wheezing. But uh, maybe an insider tip that I give parents, uh, you could hear wheezing in the lungs even without a stethoscope if you put your ear like right up against the chest. Right. So my, my, for one of my kids who is wheezes from time to time, uh, when he says, oh, yeah, I, I feel like I'm maybe a little wheezy, I'll do that. I'll, I'll push my ear against his chest <laughs> rather than go and <laughs> dig out my stethoscope. Yeah, the, where's your stethoscope? It's not that hard to find. This is a lazy medical dad. Well, yeah, don't forget that during these times of coronavirus, I leave all that medical equipment in my in my office at work. <laughs> I don't bring that stuff home anymore. Uh, true, true. Well, you can roll up a magazine. That was the original stethoscope was actually a rolled up magazine. Rolled up newspaper, yeah, something like that. <laughs> but yeah, so that's another thing you could do. You could put your ear right, like cup it against the chest and you may hear wheezing. So if you hear okay. wheezing, then you should start to think, okay, yeah, maybe my child has asthma. You should talk to your doctor. When you should say, okay, but maybe I need to come and get help more urgently is if you hear that wheezing sound, you look at your child, they're breathing fast, uh, or they say that they feel uncomfortable or feel like their chest mm -hmm. is tight or feel like, or they're saying they have problems feeling that they can catch their breath. I mean, maybe we should preamble this and say that that is actually the thing you should watch for in any of these respiratory conditions. That's, that's right. right. Like that is actually a code word for go to the hospital, right? Get assessed now. That's right. There is another form of asthma that presents mainly with coughing. Is that right? So there is this thing, cough variant asthma, which I think is probably over overdiagnosed because mm -hmm. there are many instances where kids will have a chronic cough uh, and that is just part of childhood. And mm -hmm we get so frustrated with this cough that we're looking for something to do uh, to, to fix it. And even for the physician, I think the physician has this parent in their office and they, they see that the child is well. There's no concern here that they're missing a pneumonia. They just right. need to do something to buy some time for this cough to go away. So they may give the parent a puffer and say, well, try this. Maybe it's asthma. Uh, the parents try that for a few weeks. Well, yeah, it's the, the parents been there the third time in six months over the same problem. And that's right. <laughs> that's what happens. That's right. But uh, if uh, in cough variant asthma, the cough is typically a nighttime problem. So mm. if you have somebody who uh, the cough has been going on for more than six weeks, the patient doesn't seem to really have that much problems during the daytime, but the cough is always worse at night, then mm -hmm. it may be worth saying, okay, well, let's try treating this as if it were a cough variant asthma. Mm -hmm. But in those cases, the, the puffers, you know, I've, I've, we've mentioned several times that with asthma, we use these puffers. So by these puffers, we're talking about usually one of two different types of products. Uh, one uh, that is some type of bronchodilator. The one people are most mm. familiar with is uh, salbutamol, which goes by the brand name Ventolin. Yeah, the blue one. The blue one, that's right, exactly. Most people, that's <laughs> the blue puffer. Uh, or I guess if you've, if you've watched the movie Goonies, uh, the boy in that movie has a white puffer, but I presume that that puffer is salbutamol because he's using that quite frequently for... Well, it was also 30 years ago. Maybe they changed the color code. That's right. <laughs> Anyhow... So there's that puffer. And then there's the puffers that are... Um, control medications. Yeah, control medications. Thank you. That's the word I was looking for. Those ones do not help you in the moment. Those don't help mm -hmm. you right now. Uh, those ones, you usually have to be using them for a couple of weeks before they start to mm -hmm. kick in. So they're more helpful for preventing an exacerbation than they are for treating one. Right. And those are the steroids, generally speaking. That's right. Those are typically steroids. The common one being uh, Flovent, which is an, in an orange puffer. 
Yeah, fluticasone. That's right. Although we're using another one now, seclesonide, uh, uh, which is uh, known as Alvesco is the brand name for that one. Right. So, I mean, let's talk about steroids. Like every time the word steroid comes up, parents around the world get the heebie-jeebies, myself included. Like I, I'm not going to go around giving my patients steroids if they don't have to take them, right? Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of, there are some misconceptions about steroids, but some of the fears are warranted. <laughs> So what's the deal with, with these respiratory steroids, these puffers that, that kids are asked to use? All right. So uh, they're not that bad. People are scared. <laughs> I don't want my kids to take steroids. They're not that bad. The important thing about them is that they're designed to mostly deposit in the lungs to right. go to the place where you need them. So taking one of these puffers is not likely to cause, it's not likely to cause the same type of problems you would get if you were taking that exact same medication, but you were taking it orally. And, right. and then absorbing it systemically. Right. So oral steroids, meaning taking steroids in the form of a pill or a liquid that you're drinking in That's at right. high doses, like your body is taking on a lot of the steroid load. In that case, steroids have a ton of other side effects. Like we could spend the whole hour talking about the things they could do to you. That's right. Right. But at these very, very minuscule doses where we're breathing in, much less. That's right. So we still want to emphasize that these are medicines, right? Every medicine uh, comes with the potential for side effects. And so mm -hmm. it's always a matter of risk versus benefit. You know, any doctor yeah. that tells you they're giving you a medicine that has no potential for any side effects whatsoever is not giving you medicine and is probably not <laughs> a doctor. Or they're just trying to calm you down and convince you to take the thing. <laughs> That's right. Because when you start going through that list of side effects, it freaks everyone out. That's right. Well, so when it comes to asthma, if you're an asthmatic and you need to be taking these steroids, then definitely... The, uh, the harm to you from just having untreated asthma is going to be greater than the harm to you from taking these steroids. Right, because right. you're coughing, your, your work of breathing is high, you're not getting enough oxygen. Like in theory, you know, you're, it's hard for you to get through the day, right? So the steroids will help you get better sooner. For really severe cases, the steroids, you know, do have a very significant benefit in terms of controlling the flare-up. For sure, the effects of, of having untreated asthma over the course of, uh, of your childhood, uh, those side effects are going to be bigger than the side effects that you're going to be getting from those small doses of steroids. What about, now there are other children who have more of a chronic asthma. Like if they're not on medication, then they're a little wheezy like, like all the time, right? Or their, their lung capacity is a little reduced all the time. So a lot of doctors do ask these parents to put them on you know, long-term steroids, right? Months and months and months of steroids, not on a super high dose necessarily, but regularly to, to minimize the wheeziness and shortness of breath. What, what about that? Yeah, I mean, I also, I would never prescribe a steroid for less than two months. Like, to me, it doesn't okay. make any sense from our understanding of how asthma works to be telling somebody, oh yeah, just take some steroid when you have a flare-up because by the time the right. steroid's really working, the flare-up's gone. So it usually should right. be like two months or so. But if you are somebody who's in one of these categories of taking the steroid all year round, that's rare. Mm -hmm. you, usually we're just telling you, just take the steroid during the time of year when your trigger is most active. So right. we alluded before about how allergies could be a trigger. Most things that trigger your allergies only bother you for sort of two, three months of the year. So you would take your mm -hmm. steroids during that time. Or for kids who have a flare-up when they have a cold, you take it during the, like, the cold viral season. But mm -hmm. uh, for those people who are taking steroids all year round, then... It's not a big concern that they're going to have these serious side effects like adrenal suppression, but it does tie back to what you were saying the, the Asian family's fear of, is that what if this knocks a centimeter off my child's final adult height? 
because it does. That's right. That was actually when they when we used to talk about these steroids like early back in the day, we would have to tell people like the uh, research suggests that it may actually lower your final adult height by about one centimeter. Mm. And how they actually knew that it was one centimeter, I have no idea because how would you possibly <laughs> know what that person would have been like had they grown? But well, there's there's data there's growth charts and averages that you can use yeah there, there are calculations you can use to estimate what someone's adult height is and i can yeah. tell you those things do not guess your height within <laughs> one centimeter of accuracy <laughs> or you can take two groups of people right one group's on and one group's not and just compare their heights at the end of this whole fiasco but that's the problem is nobody has done that with kids who have uncontrolled asthma and people who are treated mm. so yes True. if you compare kids who are on these steroids long term uh, to people who never needed to take steroids, then yeah, they are a centimeter, uh, on average, a centimeter shorter. However, if you actually took a, a kid who, yeah, you should be on steroids, but we're just going to not treat your asthma, then that <laughs> actually would probably also uh, affect your final height. Right? True. They need to find all the Asian parents <laughs> and run the study just on those kids. That can be the <laughs> arm. Right. But good news on that front, because... Th those studies were done primarily with the with the steroid known as Flovent, mm. or fluticasone is the sort of generic name for that. Uh, but this newer one that we use now called ciclesonide, once you reach age six, then that's the sort of approved age where you would use this other one. Ciclesonide, when you pump it out of the puffer, it's a pre-drug. So you could swallow that all day long, and it's inert. It doesn't do anything. But only what goes to your lungs gets acted upon by enzymes in your lungs and then turns that from a pre-drug into a actual medication. Uh, so that one would have at least theoretically a much smaller risk of affecting you in terms of your height. A very nice ad for a new medication. Wonderful. That's right. And so I'm <laughs> expecting a check to come in the mail from the makers of ciclesonide. <laughs> um, so here's another question that parents ask me all the time when we tell them that their children have asthma. It, are they going to outgrow this? Is it going to be get better? Like, when will it get better? So the vast majority of kids outgrow asthma. And actually, if you were younger when you first presented with symptoms, and if you're male, then you're more likely to outgrow it. But mm. even people who don't completely outgrow it, the vast majority of people, by the time they reach the end of their teenage years, it is way, mm. way less severe than it was when they were younger. To the right. point where I think I might have even made this sort of... a statement in a previous podcast, but if you were to go to a party and ask everyone at the party to empty their purse or their bag, you'd be surprised how many people have a, a puffer pop out of their bag that they say, oh, yes, yes, I just keep this in my purse, but I, you know, I maybe use it once a year or I can't remember right. the last time I used it. Right. It's a common thing. You meet people in their 30s and 20s and they're like, oh, yeah, I had asthma as a kid, but hasn't bothered me in many years. That's the pretty typical, most likely scenario with asthma, That's unfortunately. Right. To the point where sometimes I'm, I have a patient and I'm taking a family history and, I, and I'm saying, you know, this episode today could be asthma. Is there anybody in the family who has asthma? And the parents saying, no, no, not really. I mean, yeah, yeah, I had it when I was a kid, but I outgrew it. <laughs> I was like, well, that, that, this is a kid, right? <laughs> yes. Okay, so I mean, I think that's a pretty good overview of asthma. I mean, I think we covered all the parts that I wanted to hit on. Let's move to another respiratory illness. There's four that we wanted to do today. Yeah, I think asthma right. was worth spending the time on because that's probably the big one. Yeah, it's the big one. The other ones are easier. Yeah. Yeah, we're, we're going to put our listeners through a mini miniature medical school degree by the time we're done. <laughs> that's right. You'll be begging for another Star Wars episode by the time we're finished with this. <laughs> so here's another condition that many parents have heard of. And it's called croup. 
right? Yeah, okay. And or they have the croup or the croupy cough, right? And as a medical student, we were told watch for the dog barking cough, and I was always like, dog barking cough? Like I actually to this day, it does not sound like a dog barking to me. It sounds like a kid coughing repeatedly. That's because you and I were goofing off during that lecture. <laughs> it's not actually a dog barking. It's a seal barking. What? That's right. <laughs> The sound of croup is supposed to be like a seal barking. You know, seals have kind of like a sound when they when they make their seal noises. That's what it's supposed to be. But people abbreviate that to just say barky cough. Parents Google it and they hear barky cough. Physicians re repeat it, barky cough. And people think, well, what barks? Dogs bark. So now everybody talks like it's a dog barking. Oh man, I guessed you were right. I was goofing off in medical school. <laughs> but to be to to be fair to you, I was often distracting you in those lectures. <laughs> so it's a seal barking cough, which is even much more difficult to comprehend because I have no idea. I mean, aside from you making that weird noise that you just did, but what are parents actually expecting to see in this case? Like, when should they be thinking about croup? So the thing, the hallmark of croup is that it comes on really fast and then often disappears as fast as it came on. And mm. we say croup like as, it's, like as if it's its own disease. You know, people say, oh my gosh, my, my kid caught the croup, and I don't know where they could have got the croup from. But I almost describe croup more as a symptom than as a disease. Croup is, yeah. a, is a symptom that you get from a viral illness. The same type of viruses that would cause you or me to just have a runny nose. When you're small, mm -hmm. it can cause a problem where you get a bit of inflammation in the upper part of the airway around the vocal cords, and it makes that mm -hmm. airway more narrow, and that's what leads to that croupy type of cough that you hear. Right. Um, and that's not actually what makes croup a big deal. You know, the, the fact that they have this cough, the cough is annoying, but that's not actually what makes croup something that would bring you to the emergency department. It's that sometimes mm -hmm. that airway swelling can get bad enough that the, the child actually starts having trouble breathing. Right. And that's where you'll hear a noise with their breathing that we call strider. So mm -hmm. strider is a sound like, uh, uh, and whereas I was describing wheezing as a sound that they're making when they're breathing out, strider is a sound that they're making when they're trying to breathe in. Mm. So the, the very classic story for croup is that the child had cold-like symptoms for a day or so and had some cough that wasn't particularly unusual or barky. Uh, then, most typically in the nighttime when the child's sleeping or sometimes after a nap, the child suddenly goes from being seemingly well to now the cough sounds very uh, distinct, very different from what you mm -hmm. heard before. And that's where you would say right. like a seal barking or just a high-pitched cough. Um, and with that, sometimes you start to have that strider sound. And that's where the parents mm -hmm. are naturally quite concerned and saying, oh my gosh, like my child, like they can't breathe. You know, you're worried that they're, that they're not going to make it. And then they come to the hospital. And what's also very typical for croup is that by the time I see them, it's actually better. And the parents mm -hmm. are now saying like, no, you don't understand. Uh, I, I, I'm not a panicking person. I, I wouldn't come here and waste my time and yours if they look this good. <laughs> but at home, you, you have to believe me, they were looking terrible. And right. usually the families are happy when I'm saying like, no, 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 no. That's, that's what I would expect for this thing that we call croup. I, I completely believe we, right. what you're saying. And, I, and I'm going to treat you with medication, even though now they look better. Right. So the medication treatment for this is like a steroid. That's right. So. Back to the steroids. <laughs> So one thing about Western doctors, we have a very limited arsenal of things. <laughs> That's right. But when you want to bring down inflammation, uh, steroids are great for that. Right. So this is a this is like a one dose of oral steroid liquid. 
right? That's right. We usually we use something called dexamethasone, which is mm-hmm. a it's a steroid that works in the body for close to forty eight hours or so. So usually you only need one dose per group because mm-hmm. that'll get you through the, the the hard part of it. And then by the time the steroids wearing off, usually they're not at risk for having that strider. Now we just talked about like being worried about side effects if we were taking oral steroids. How about in this case? Should parents be worried? Uh, this is a medicine that if you were taking it for you know, uh, more than a week at the doses that you would take it for croup, then you would actually start saying like, okay, we can't do that too many times in a winter mm-hmm. before you have to be concerned. But if you're just taking uh, one dose, then that's fine. And bear mm-hmm. in mind that we're talking about one dose of steroid where it's going to have no discernible side effect for that one dose uh, compared to your child's not breathing and can't get air into their lungs. Right. It's a, it's a medical emergency at that point. Yeah. And the steroid can... When I see you in the emergency department, I'm not actually giving you the steroid to fix what I'm seeing right now in front of my eyes because the steroid, it, although it lasts for a long time, it, it takes about uh, four to six hours before that's really starting to really uh, have its full kicking in. Whereas mm-hmm. you don't want to wait four to six hours if you can't breathe. So right. when I hear that strider sound where they can't get air in, I'm giving them uh, a vaporized medicine called uh, epinephrine, which uh, people might recognize that as being the other name for adrenaline. So you mentioned something about age here with croup, right? So it happens in a more specific age subcategory. Typically up until age six. Uh, mm-hmm. Less common to have it after age six and almost unheard of to have, have it after age 12. Okay. Okay. So really the, the, the parents of very little kids are the ones that might encounter this. And then after six, you're almost out of the woods. That's right. It'd be un- a bit unusual to have it for the first time after age six. So if they okay. are having it after age six, usually the parents are a bit more familiar with it and comfortable with it. Hmm. Okay. There's another wheezy condition. So this one is called bronchiolitis. Yes. And I did not understand this topic when I was a medical student. It took me a long time to really get my head around this thing. So... This is the other thing that causes kids to wheeze, but it's not asthma, actually. That's right. right? That's right. But it's another problem around the bronchioles. So mm-hmm. you know, as, a, as a parent, when you hear wheezing, then you, usually your first thought should be, well, something's going on in the part of the lungs right. that we call the bronchioles. And you know right. this is a problem in the chest, not a problem coming from the, the nose or the throat, if it's true, true wheezing. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this, this thing of bronchiolitis, it often causes confusion even for physicians because the question is, well, if it's wheezing, is it asthma or is it bronchiolitis? Well, a few years ago, I was, I was in a study group with like other family doctors yeah. and we did this topic. And then when, one of the things is that you kind of run through, what would you do to deal with the topic and then to deal with this illness if it presents? And then when you're done t- discussing it, then you read and what the actual way you're supposed to deal with it was. And we were all like, oh, I'll give the steroids. I'll give the puffers. <laughs> then you turn to the last page and realize there's no treatment for this thing. You don't do anything. <laughs> right. So I did eventually figure this one out. Yeah. But but. It's so similar to asthma that even for physicians, I feel that there's this tendency for this line between asthma and bronchiolitis to get blurred over. Yeah. Well, the big, the big distinguishing feature that helps to make the, dis- the difference off the bat is that clinically, bronchiolitis is much, much more common for kids under one year of age, whereas mm-hmm. asthma is very rare for kids under one year of age, and I would say virtually impossible for kids under seven months of age. Because asthma is a problem that's defined by the fact that the, these tubes of the lungs called the bronchioles are being squeezed closed by these muscles. And these muscles are not developed enough before seven months of age to cause that mm. constriction and to have the receptors on the muscle that tell the muscle to constrict uh, and okay. to relax when we give the medication. 
All right. See, I did not know that. Good. Yeah. So it, it I mean, I don't want to say pet peeve, but um, it makes me furious when I have patients who are three weeks old, four weeks old, and their doctor has said, oh, yeah, they were wheezing. So the family doctor put them on, on Ventolin. You know, right. Like that. That's completely inappropriate. <laughs> I mean, not to say it's a pet peeve, but. It's just inappropriate. Yeah, it's just inappropriate. <laughs> so, so what we're saying is there's an age cutoff before we'll start saying that it's asthma, right? That's right. And there's also an and, age cutoff where we'll stop saying that's bronchiolitis. Right. So, so where are these cutoffs roughly? So after age two, we don't generally say that you have bronchiolitis anymore. If you're okay. if you're wheezing and you're two years old or, or older, then we're definitely going to treat that as asthma right off the bat. Right. So the I, the concept then is that children can be kind of wheezy as little babies, right? Like seven months, 10 months, but they don't need much treatment. Usually bronchiolitis passes, right? They get wheezy. It's often induced, I believe, by a viral illness, same as asthma. That's right. But then it'll, it'll sound really bad. So you'll feel like your kid has asthma, but then in a few days it settles on its own. That's right. That's, that's what makes it tricky to, to separate those two things is that both mm-hmm. of them are often triggered by a viral illness. Um, both of them mm-hmm. can come with cough, with fever, with runny nose, preceding the, the difficulty breathing. But with mm-hmm. bronchiolitis, generally they're going to be less than a year of age. There's a gray area between uh, one year of age and two years of age where either of those conditions can be presenting. And so that's mm-hmm. where it's the physician's job to help separate which of those two things it could be. But for mm-hmm. a parent, if your kid is making that wheezy noise, but they're not showing those signs of respiratory distress that we talked about. So they're not breathing fast. They're not sucking in the skin at the neck or between the ribs. They're tolerating their feeds just fine. Uh, they're able to drink well enough to keep peeing. Then mm-hmm. uh, if it's bronchiolitis, they're, they're going to generally be fine. And when you come to the hospital and we're trying to make the decision, well, do we have to bring this patient to hospital? What we're looking at is, okay, well, is this kid's oxygen saturation less than 90%? So that's where we stick on an oxygen probe and we measure how well their blood's carrying oxygen. And mm-hmm. whereas for other conditions, I would not be very happy if the patient's oxygen saturation was 92 or 93%. Uh, for someone with bronchiolitis, it's like, ah, no, they'll be fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so the hard cutoff for saying, well, but you have to come into hospital is one, if the, if the oxygen saturation is below that number. Or two, if their respiratory distress is so bad that they can't drink well enough to keep peeing, well, that kid's mm-hmm. probably going to need some way of getting fluid into their body, and when you're not going to be able to do that at home, so th- those ones will come into hospital. So, but those are the only two like definitive treatments that uh, have great evidence that make a big difference. All the other mm-hmm. things that we do, you know, if people really care about it, I can get to the nitty gritties of all the different studies that say like this might help <laughs> and that might help. But for the most part, none of those treatments are really strongly endorsed as making a big big difference. Okay. Let's move on to the last topic, pneumonia, right? Uh-huh. This is the big one, right? This is the, this is the one when, when parents hear the word pneumonia, they get scared. This is the one right? where this is what the parents were actually worried about when they came to see us. And all the other <laughs> things that we talked about already are the things that were reassuring them. Like, don't worry, it's only this. And the parents <laughs> like, Oh, you cause you sure it's not pneumonia. Cause that's the thing I was actually scared of. I remember knowing nothing about pneumonia as a as a college student, like one of my friends got pneumonia and we were like, oh, pneumonia. Okay, well, that's fine. That's not contagious, right? Like we had no idea what the word pneumonia went. Uh, pneumonia was always a thing where it's like, well, you can't go outside with wet hair. You'll get pneumonia. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. It's, it's only contracted through wet hair, not through other people, right? And then later on, we started to learn about this in school. And then at some point I realized, wow, this pneumonia 
of it it has a nasty reputation for a reason like so many people in the world die from pneumonia even today in 2020 right like elderly frail people like this is a leading cause of death in the world so it has we have a right to be frightened of this diagnosis well uh i think that's much more true for adults than it is for yeah. children uh, right. and part of that is because we use the when we when you and i say pneumonia as physicians what we're talking about is a very broad category of just inflammation in the part of the lungs that they call the parenchyma or inflammation in the alveoli, mm -hmm. the sacs that hold oxygen and, and deliver it to the blood. Right. And, you or know, other infection, an infection causing that inflammation. Well, well, pneumonia technically just means that it's inflamed. Mm. But uh, when people are talking about pneumonia colloquially or out in the street, what they're usually referring to is they mean bacterial pneumonia. And mm. even when I'm talking to patients, when I say like, okay, good news, it's not pneumonia. You, what I really mean is that it's not bacterial pneumonia. Uh, however, uh, viral illnesses cause a, a lot of pneumonia. And in small kids, they cause the vast, vast majority of right. pneumonia. Right. So, so this one, I actually wanted to some help in clarifying. Because I've seen some doctors that the moment a child gets diagnosed with pneumonia, they slap the antibiotics on. But at the same time, I've seen the documents saying in certain age groups, viral pneumonia is the most likely. So if you think it's a virus, why are we treating them all with antibiotics? The problem is that there's not an easy way clinically to make the distinction between whether it's viral or bacterial pneumonia. And mm. uh, even if you do an x-ray, which I strongly advocate, you know, in most circumstances, physicians should be doing an x-ray if they're calling it pneumonia. Although right. it's not absolutely necessary, it's, it's good practice most of the time. Anyhow, uh, even on an x-ray, you can't be sure when you see pneumonia on the x-ray if that pneumonia is bacterial or if that is viral. So because you're not sure if it's not bacterial, the common practice has been to say, okay, well, then let's treat it as if it is bacterial pneumonia and give people antibiotics. Let's talk about it from the parent's point of view. Okay. So what are they looking for if, they're, if they want to assess their child and see if do they have a pneumonia? Do they need to see a doctor? Like, What are the signs of a pneumonia? So the two big things with pneumonia is going to be fever and respiratory distress. Uh, mm -hmm. the, so there's two approaches that you're going to have as a parent. So it's not that you're going to wake up one day and say, I, I wonder if my kid has pneumonia. Let me see if they have any pneumonia symptoms. <laughs> uh, it's more that you're going to see your kid having some symptoms and then you're going to wonder, oh, well, could it be pneumonia? <laughs> so it's going to come as one of two things, right? It's either going to be, okay, my kid's had a fever and the fever is really high or the fever is going on for a long time. And so they're not having any breathing problems, but because I don't have an explanation for the fever, is that pneumonia? Yes. So that's one yeah, category. So that's, that's common. Yeah. yeah. The other category is they don't, may not have fever at all, but they're having trouble breathing. And so then now I'm wondering, okay, is this pneumonia? Mm -hmm. So starting with the breathing category, with pneumonia, one of the most sensitive things in terms of figuring out if they have pneumonia, one of the things that's there most of the time is that they're breathing fast. And it doesn't get better after you give them some, some Advil or Tylenol or something to, to help bring down the fever. And then the treatment for pneumonia, various versions of antibiotics, depending on what type of pneumonia that the physician suspects. Yeah, and most right. of the time it should be amoxicillin. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a good, any physician out there who's listening to this, that's my message to use. If it's a, <laughs> all right, all if right. it's a child, <laughs> if it's a kid, it should be amoxicillin most of the time. Now... We've covered asthma, croup, bronchiolitis, pneumonia, and I had one more of these, a soft topic thrown in here. 
this lingering bronchitis thing. Like I, I see this all the time in the office where people come in and they've been coughing for months and then they'll say, oh, another doctor thought they had bronchitis or my doctor told me I had bronchitis. Yeah. Right. And this, this is a common term and it is an actual medical term, but what is actually bronchitis? What do people mean by this and what do they not mean by it? Uh, I mean, I'll probably end up bouncing this question back to you from the point of view, bronchitis <laughs> is not a pediatric diagnosis. Children, right. like I, I there sh it should be very, very uncommon for physicians to be diagnosing children with bronchitis. But right. the bronchi are just the two tubes that split off of the bigger tube that I talked right. before the trachea, right? So if those so are those... inflamed, that's bronchitis, I guess. Right, right. So it's a common thing in older people that smoke. But the problem is a lot of people will come in with this picture of, you know, they had a bad cough, they had a bad cold like eight weeks ago or 12 weeks ago. And, and since then, they've just can't shake that cough. Right. It just every night they cough, they, they cough all day. But at night, it's a little worse. Right. It's just going day after day and they're getting a little worried. Like that is a very, very common thing that I see in my office. Yeah. And it's not as common with children, actually. It happens more in like to, the, to what I can recall, like the middle-aged people, Yeah. right? And those are the people that are coming and saying, you know, I, I went to a walk-in clinic and they told me I have bronchitis, right? Right. And that usually is not bronchitis, <laughs> right? Yeah. When, when, pe when people bring in a child to the emergency department and then they tell me, like, oh, yeah, yeah, we, we went to the walk-in clinic and there they told me that my, that my uh, say, 14-month-old had bronchitis. Uh, right. Usually, what happens next is the patient says, or the parent says, "Dr. Harmon, why are you making that face?" And I say, <laughs> oh, "I'm just trying to figure out if your doctor actually said bronchiolitis and you just misunderstood, or if your doctor's just bad at their job." <laughs> <laughs> True. It's very confusing that they name these conditions just with these ridiculously long names, <laughs> right? As a medical student, I found it overwhelming, and it's only slightly better now as an adult. Yeah, for, especially for that one, bronchitis versus bronchiolitis. It would have been helpful for us if they called one bronchiolitis and they called the other one spagasmataz. <laughs> you know, nobody would get those two terms mixed up. Yeah. I think a lot of times when people think they have bronchitis, or they've been told this, what the doctor really means is they just have this long lingering cough, right? right? And this is the way of giving it a name that doesn't sound ridiculous. Yeah. Right. So the name that technically we should be calling a lot of these is the post viral cough. That's right. right? Which does sound rather ridiculous. <laughs> right. Which means that after you had a virus, you have this cough and it can go on for months and months. Yeah. Right. And I see that a fair amount. And those coughs sometimes have a, a bit of like the asthma picture, you know, like the cough is worse at night. Yeah. They'll get to like 9 or 10 p.m. and they're starting to cough more. And it can rage on for three, four, five months in people, but eventually it peters out. Yeah. And most of the studies show that you don't really need to treat them. But the problem is in that category, a lot of doctors start to give the patients, you know, puffers because they're like, you know what, you've been coughing for so long. Let's try a steroid. Let's try a Ventolin. Yeah. Right. And eventually, sometimes the cough does get better because it's due to get better soon anyway. Yeah. And so patients sometimes end up using this stuff and doctors keep prescribing it. We're kind of stuck in that loop. Yeah. This is you know, usually for me, if a person's coughing for this long, I just ask them, come in, do a chest x-ray. Let's just make sure there isn't any other cause of this chronic cough. Yeah. And then we'll ride it out. It'll, it'll settle eventually. Yeah. So there you have it. Mini med school, day one. That's right. <laughs> and I, and I, we, we promise you this was like less dry and more entertaining than we had to learn it the first time. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I mean, 
I think it is important for parents to go th- to know a little bit about these conditions because they're actually pretty common. So if you have small children or even teenagers, like you're going to encounter this, right? And it's good to know a little bit about it, I think. I can, I'll end off with a, a quick anecdote that has nothing to do with asthma, but just to leave people with maybe not such a dry taste in their mouth. The other day, we were, we were being, some of my family were talking about uh, things from the 80s. And we were talking about uh, a ghetto blaster. We were talking about ghetto blasters. And then uh, my daughter, who was there, who's 10, uh, I was saying like, wait, wait, wait. I'm not sure if she actually knows what we're talking about. So I said to her, honey, uh, what is a ghetto blaster? So she thinks for a minute. She says, it's either a really cool weapon or something you do in the bathroom. (laughs) So... We're getting old. It's basically the <laughs> point of that story. <laughs> oh, man. You you know, you cannot even buy a ghetto blaster if you wanted one right now. Like, you, I actually went looking for you it. Did? <laughs> so that you could lay down some cardboard and start doing a head spin? No, because my son, like, he doesn't have a way to play music. So we actually had a ghetto blaster, I guess. It's, it's a boom box, yeah. right? With the CD player and tape player and the two speakers. And you can lift it by a handle. We had one of these things uh-huh. and he was he was always on it because he had, we had a few CDs that he can play. Uh-huh. So he'll just lie there and punch the music. But over time with a three-year-old, a CD player is a sensitive piece of equipment. <laughs> it's going to break, right? So Ghetto Blaster turns into Ghetto Disaster, <laughs> right? So now I'm like, we're, like and the, it's not a very high-end product, right? This was like an old boom box from Canadian Tire, yeah. right? So that's the other part of it. If you buy these things from Canadian Tire, you know the life expectancy is 30 days to begin with, right? <laughs> so suddenly we're, I'm like looking for this and it's COVID. So I'm not going to go out to buy a Ghetto Blaster Canadian Tire. I'm like checking online, yeah. you know, Costco, Walmart. They don't sell this item anymore. This isn't a thing that people have. They, they have things called like like uh ipod ipod touch right? right or i guess they don't even have that anymore iphone touch or whatever like you can stream music like who needs an actual cd player nobody except my son <laughs> well, i mean a, a, an actual ghetto blaster would be a tape player right so with, <laughs> with red lines that go up and down to show you how intense the music is blasting yes, yeah no trying to yes. order that online is like trying to order a cathode ray tube tv <laughs> Although there is a convincing argument for the cathode ray tube TV because you can't play those old video game systems <laughs> like the one that NES we just dug out of the basement. That's you it. cannot use that on a regular TV anymore. That is the single argument for a cathode ray tube TV <laughs> is to play Duck Hunt. All right. Well, we hope everyone out there learned a little bit about respiratory conditions. We hope that your child is able to... to dodge all these respiratory conditions but in the case that some of these things happen at least you know a little bit more about those conditions than when you started an hour ago Uh, that's a good way of summarizing next week we'll talk about bronchial obliterans (laughs) no we're not (laughs) all right adios everyone see you in a week